welcome back to another episode of What the HR, an award-winning podcast. I'm Jesse Novi. And I'm Mike Toole. The What the HR podcast explores how to build people-centric businesses through modern practices and approaches. New episodes are released frequently, so don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss any episodes. to another episode of What the HR. Today, we're joined by Erica Reed to discuss navigating HR burnout, specifically how you would characterize burnout in HR and how it differs from burnout in other professions, what some contributing factors are that lead to HR burnout and secondary trauma, and how organizations can contribute to creating an environment that supports the well-being of HR professionals. So a little bit about um, Erica. She is the founder of Leading Well Solutions. She's got over 25 years of experience as a psychotherapist and workplace wellness expert. She helps HR professionals and people leaders become inclusive leaders with higher levels of emotional intelligence, improve communication skills, and the ability to optimize the unique strengths of employees. She provides training, coaching, and consulting services that consider the unique lived experience of a diverse workforce. Specifically, HR pros and managers are given actionable strategies and insights to lead with trauma-informed empathy to more effectively engage and retain a stressed out and burnt out workforce. As a result, organizations become spaces of growth, creativity, and collaboration. As always, if you are loving our podcast episodes and our guests, do us a huge favor, head out onto your favorite podcast platform, leave us both a rating and a review. Doing both of those things together really ensures that our podcast is getting out to other HR professionals and business leaders and allows um, us to continue to produce this episode, these episodes for you and bring you these incredible guests. So thanks again for being a What the HR podcast listener and enjoy the episode. Erica, welcome to the What the HR podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thank you so much and thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. So um, although we read your bio and introduced you at the top of the episode, I would love for you to share in your own words a little bit about your background and what brought you into this space today, knowing that we're going to be talking about HR burnout as our topic. Sure. Well, I am a psychotherapist by training as well as by experience. So I work with individuals and family units in my practice And that's really where I I started. And I love that work. I continue to do that work. But what I was hearing is that individuals will come into their session and they would do their work on themselves. And then they will go to their job. And everything that was happening in the workplace of those people who were not doing their work actually created an undoing process for my clients. So I came to realize that Working with individuals is is very important, and which is why I continue to do it. But we need to look at the system, which is often creating the challenges that people experience individually. With that said, I started working in workplace environments to try to help employees as well as managers 
So really wanting to create whole environments that are healthy and not just working individually. And I I love the analogy that one of my clients had shared where she said um, that it's almost as if she spent all day in the hairdresser getting her hair exactly the way she wanted it. And then she stepped outside and this wind said whoosh and everything that she had invested her time and energy and effort into just went out the window, literally. And that's what she felt like when she had to go to work and work with people who were not well, toxic environments. So that's when I made that shift and why I felt it was so important to broaden my reach, so to speak. I love that. And I know that you probably have um, knowledge and, and capability and understanding of talking about a lot of topics underneath your umbrella of expertise. But today, given our audience is HR folks, predominantly business leaders, we're going to talk about HR burnout. So I'd love for you to characterize burnout in HR and you know how does it differ from burnout in other professions is you know as, as far as you're aware as far as your ex- experience as far as what you've experienced yeah sure so you know we all are familiar with burnout and that's a very unfortunate truth right workplace environments create a high demand of work but not necessarily providing all of the resources that people need to be successful and when we know about what we know about burnout is really that it creates like more of a pessimistic op- Uh, outlook on the work that you're doing. You're not as emotionally involved. You become a bit more detached and you have a hard time really investing yourself in the work that you're doing and even tired all the time. I think one of the major differences with just, we'll call it general burnout versus the burnout that HR professionals experience is that human element. Whereas like we'll call the general population of employees and managers, they're more so burned out because of the workload that they're experiencing and the expectations. HR people deal with people, you know, and people's stuff. And when HR professionals are receiving all of the emotional turmoil, the conflict, HR, I love this this T-shirt that I saw one day scrolling through social media, and it said HR is, psychologist, lawyer, referee, and it has some other things on there. And that's because people come to HR with all of their stuff. And unfortunately, it's not a lot of positive stuff. You know, you don't get the warm fuzzies. You don't get to experience all of the wins. And when HR has people's stuff and their trauma and their conflict, then that creates a totally different type of emotional toll on HR professionals. And that is a different level of HR burnout. It even goes into secondary trauma, which is when the traumas that you experience on a daily basis from other people now become your own. And you respond in a very similar fashion. So I think about from like a psychologist or psychiatrist perspective, when you go into your profession, you go to school for it, you kind of know what you're walking into, like you're trained to do that and right to listen to people and go through their emotional roller coasters with them. When you think about HR leaders or not even leaders, people just going into it, like how can they be better equipped 
to handle all that stuff that the employees are are bringing at them. Yeah, and and I love that because I often get you know you're telling us all this. I'm not a therapist. You're it's like that's cool. I'm the therapist. I'll do my part, <laughs> but. You don't actually have to be a therapist to know that people's stuff impacts them. They're more than just a job description. When they walk through that door, they bring all of their unique lived experiences with them into the workplace environment. So whether you are a new or a seasoned HR professional, number one, there's that awareness piece that when people show up, they don't just show up to do their job. They show up to do their job with everything that they had have, have happened in their life, whether it was this morning because they had a fight with their significant other, their kid, you know, was a hot, holy mess coming out the door or, you know, they are triggered because of something that has happened in the news of social media. So number one is just that awareness that people are showing up with their good as well as their bad experiences. I think it's also important to understand the role of self in that interaction because just like they show up with their stuff, you show up with yours. You know, we are also going to perceive people's actions and reactions based upon the lens that we are wearing. You know, how is our stuff showing up? Are we personalizing things that are being said to us or around us? And even with HR rather new or seasoned, recognizing the impact that the system has, you know, recognizing that you have a lot on your plate just in general, but some of the stuff that comes to you shouldn't even get to your door. If others in the system, such as managers, were more aware of, number one, what your job actually is and is not, but also how to operate with uh, solid people skills, with solid emotional intelligence. So some of it may be a measure of helping managers become better managers so that you can do your job more effectively as an HR professional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think about a lot of companies in the past you know three four years focusing heavily on employee well-being and it seems like at least from what i've seen and this is an assumption so correct me if i'm wrong but that they tend to pick people to champion these projects and it's not necessarily it doesn't even have to be an hr It, it oftentimes is but it's somebody who i would say isn't likely well equipped from an educational perspective to lead those charges. So I just the question in all of that is, have you seen or should companies be hiring professionals with that background to be leading these wellness charges? Uh, is that and, and Jess, you may be able to answer that better too, but like is that happening? Or because from like I said, from what I've seen, it's it's somebody who just like, hey, I want to champion this. And it's uh, it's it's rarely, if if ever, like a licensed professional in the workplace handling these things. Yeah, I 100% agree because it's great to want to advocate within the organization and pull someone in because they may have a lot of knowledge, but it's a siloed knowledge. It's based upon their positioning and the the people who they most closely collaborate with. There is a difference between wanting to and being capable of. And a lot of times there's a big gap in those two areas. So in my opinion, it's more effective and efficient 
uh, and healthy to bring in an outside person, a, a trained and licensed individual to provide training, to provide coaching on employee well-being, because you know, we are able to get to the heart of it. And we don't have a vested interest in the politics that sometimes employees have to navigate when they're trying to perhaps provide new information or implement some type of change management process. So, you know, one of those things also that just comes to mind is emotional intelligence. And everyone has, you know, it's very well documented and most times accepted that emotional intelligence is one of the most, if not the most important skill set for an, a leader or even for an employee. But you have a lot of folks even that are doing emotional intelligence training without understanding the impact of people, the impact that um, trauma, for example, has in the way you're able to be self-aware, in the way people show up. So that social awareness piece. So sometimes organizations will take a package and say, here, I want you to advocate and be the champion based upon this package of information that I pulled off the Internet without that unique understanding of how to really understand and implement it. Mm -hmm. Have you seen over the last few years, you know, with the pandemic and I'd say more importantly, most people are going to hybrid or remote work completely. Um, have you seen more burnout in the HR space? Like I, I know right after the pandemic, like HR went through so much, but even coming out of that, I'm wondering if like specifically the remote work aspect, does it is it does it create less empathy maybe because you're not sitting, you know, face to face or being around them all the time? Like what have you seen from a burnout in HR post pandemic or just over the course of the last three to five years, call it? I have seen an increase and it's not decreased at all, right? It, it, it's had some plateau as people recreated their norm, but I think now we were seeing an increase again as we're having more change take place because of people returning back to work, trying to figure out what all of this looks like, um, the retention challenges that are popping up more and more as I don't want to return to the office, so I'm going to go find another job. So you have that cycle that keeps popping up. The empathy piece, I think, is definitely more challenging when there is distance. I'm going to give it the opposite end, though, with one of the challenges I think HR professionals have with burnout is not having a healthy boundary where they're... You, you, I've never heard an HR person say, I am getting this job for the money, and that's the only thing I want. You know, HR professionals are caring people. They have a heart for the work that they're doing. And sometimes that heart is so big, their empathy is so strong, that it creates not the healthiest of boundaries, become overly emotionally invested in the challenges. So for that piece, I actually think the remote work has helped to create more boundaries with HR professionals and empathy, but I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done for that self-protection, for that um, recovery from burnout, for that improved mental health. Earlier on, Erica, you had mentioned that when you were scrolling social media, you had come across, I don't know if it was a t-shirt or a mug or something with the saying on it regarding all of the hats that we wear in HR, which I couldn't agree with more. Therapists definitely being probably in like the top two. And one of the things that I have found 
doing this now for nearly 20 years is that sometimes there's not, you know, there's not necessarily like a safe place for us HR folks to go and kind of vent and receive the therapy that we need internally so that we can show up better and continue to be good therapists and, and support folks for the leaders and the businesses in which we work with. Any suggestions for, you know, internal HR leaders or HR teams to, to just kind of better support one another and create safe places for people to go invent without it looking like we're complaining or we don't like our jobs or, you know, we're displeased with the work because that's not always what venting is, right? It's just needing some time and a safe space, psychological safety for, you know, we create psychological or we encourage psychologically safe workplaces for our people, but sometimes we might not always feel like we have the psychological safety internally to also take action and speak up when we need to. Totally. And and you're 100% right. You know, you have to have that safe space. And depending upon how our organization is structured, you may be a party of one in that world where no one else could possibly begin to understand the challenges that you face on a day-to-day basis. Or you can have, a, you know, a lot of people in HR working with you. The, the key piece is, is to acknowledging that while you're awesome and amazing and you make such impact, you still need help. You cannot do this on your own. And just by definition, the role is often very isolating. You know, you have to have some pretty solid professional boundaries with everyone else that's not, um, I guess, in, in your position. So finding those cohorts, finding those communities, being intentional about seeking it out and recognizing it, it's a sign of strength. It's a sign of you building your skill set so that you can pour back into those that you are working with in an organization. It's not a sign of weakness to say, I just need to share this thing that happened today because I need someone to bounce this off of or just to release. That's always very helpful. The other interesting piece is HR is the keeper of benefits. But HR does not always use the benefits that they advocate others utilize. So more, you know, more often than not, your organization has employee assistance programs. Why not use them? They're free. You know, you you get the, the benefit of therapy that's, as you know, confidential. So you have that safe space. Or you can just go directly um, to a, a therapist that you may be aware of that's in your insurance program or if you want to pay out of pocket. Using therapy, using HR professionals, giving yourself permission to say, I don't need to do this by myself, I think is the biggest thing. You know, when we were younger, you wanted to go on that field trip, you had to have your parent write that permission slip for you to say, it's okay for me to, for my kid to step outside of their their current place and go someplace new. Well, we grown now. And it's time for us to write our own permission slips to do what's in our best interest, to practice self-care, to practice self-love, and biggest of all, be compassionate toward ourselves. Yeah, I think those are great, great suggestions. And given your background um, in in therapy, um, any recommendations that I'm, I'm assuming therapists when they're going to school um, or psychologists going to school, learn techniques, how to not take their 
work, like emotional workload home with them. You know, that the kind of empathetic personality that I think both HR folks and probably folks in the um, psychology um, industry um, probably possess. So any any techniques for those, especially I think about those that sit in like employee relations roles in HR, where they they do tend to be the ones where most of the complaints come through. They're managing investigations. They're managing a lot of emotional uh, feelings and experiences based on something that could be very traumatic that had happened to that employee in the workplace. Yeah, so I think one of the most important things is to be aware of self and recognize how you and your stuff is showing up. Because sometimes, and and to to your point, one of the things that's taught to us as therapists is a concept of counter-transference, where there's something in that client or something in that employee that we identify with or emotionally connect with, where we become perhaps overly invested in the outcome of the situation, or we connect our feelings to their feelings. So we want to be aware of our own stuff because that's going to always show up in how we connect and support others. So having that self-talk when you're sitting in a meeting or when you're you know, navigating a situation, check in with yourself. What am I thinking right now? What am I feeling? Is this my stuff showing up or am I fully focused on what's happening in this space? You know, one of the things that I, you know, I'm very passionate about is creating trauma-informed leaders because with that understanding of the impact of trauma, then you, in, in mental health, you you know, you definitely have that ability to navigate through experiences in a safer way for yourself, while at the same time creating safety uh, for others, because you are not triggering them through un, unconsciously or being unaware of how your actions are showing up. So being, um, being aware is obviously one of the key tenets of emotional intelligence, but a lot of people don't really get that first part right before they can move on. And that's really important for me when I'm doing trainings around um, emotional intelligence It's always through a trauma-informed lens or when I'm working with individuals through leadership development coaching. You know, how are you and even your cognitive distortions, that's definitely something that I want people to understand is, what are, what are your thoughts telling you about a situation? Have you already created a narrative about what's going to happen before it even, even has happened? Like when you know that a stressful conversation is about to come up, we, we, we elevate, our anxiety goes up and that's already created the filter that we're going to, th- going to view the situation through. So having that self-awareness is really important. Can you expand a little bit more on trauma-informed leaders and what that might look like in terms of resources or um, just generally speaking? Yeah, so I when when I'm I'm working to help people understand what that looks like, I've I've broken it down into seven principles, and you know I won't go through them all, but basically as a summary, it's about understanding that people and their unique lived experiences will show up in the workplace, in in how we are interacting. And number one, you have to understand the impact of trauma. 
let me back up, understand what trauma is, right? And a lot of times people think of trauma as just that stuff that happened in childhood. Yes, that is the case as well. But trauma is, you know, when we are facing toxic work environments, when we've been chronically micromanaged in environments, when we are involved in unhealthy relationships as adults, when we have had grief challenges. And we know there's been a lot of grief over these last few years that don't get resolved, but show up in how we interact and engage. You know, you hired that stellar employee and they came in rearing and, you know, dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's and they were, you're just awesome, gold stars all the way around. But then something shifted and understanding instead of judging is really about connecting with them and how to ask questions while respecting boundaries how to have those difficult conversations instead of shying away and recognizing that, no, they're they're not being lazy. No, they're not disengaged because they're not motivated, but maybe there's some challenges going on in their life that if you supported them in a different way, you could foster resilience instead of creating more trauma for them. You know, trauma-informed leadership is also really about understanding that everyone brings a unique strength and how to identify and help employees even identify it. Sometimes people become demotivated and stressed because we're having them operate in areas that is not a strength, that's not been developed. So understanding what that looks like and how to develop it. Another key point is realizing that it's not equally distributed. You know, trauma does not look the same for everyone. And when we're having empathy for that, empathy is not about putting yourself in someone else's shoes. I know that that's a definition that people often use to describe empathy, putting yourself in someone else's shoes and imagine what that's like. My challenge with that definition is if I were to put myself in your shoes, I don't know where your shoes have been. I am making assumptions based upon my experiences, based upon my perceptions, my biases. So when I'm teaching trauma-informed principles and leadership, it's with the lens of empathy has to be looked at differently. And that's really, really important to being a trauma-informed leader. It's stepping outside of that assumption that we've been operating in. Thank you for expanding on that. I think that was really helpful. And I think it goes back to the earlier statement that you made that if leaders were better trained, better informed, better equipped to support their their personnel, their employees in a way that they need to be supported, that HR would probably receive less complaints. Our employee relations teams wouldn't be as busy. We would receive, you know, less harassment and discrimination and volatile workplace, et cetera, et cetera, claims and feelings. Um, and so Correct me if I'm wrong, Erica, but I'm, what I'm hearing is it probably boils down to companies investing in outside support to really help train leaders on some of these topics that, frankly, most of us, just due to the nature of our business and our expertise, maybe know a little bit about to be dangerous, but certainly aren't certified or experts on the topic. Yes, 100% agree. You know, all of these things are very interconnected. You know, nothing. 
operates in isolation. Unfortunately, it's stuff for HR sometimes because you have to be by yourself a lot. But everything is a system. And if we don't address each part of the system, then the whole thing is not able to work effectively. And, you know, I always think of a baby mobile. If you, you know, envision it hanging over the crib and it's got these different pieces hanging down from the mobile, you know, depending upon your theme, it may be teddy bears or blocks or what have you. If you click, if you tap on one piece of that mobile on one little teddy bear that's dangling, everything else in that system on that mobile will also be impacted. So we have to recognize that if we can give managers the training that they need, the support, the understanding of how to more effectively support employees, how to navigate those difficult conversations, how to recognize the role of self in how they show up for employees, then we can make that mobile shimmy and shake in a healthier direction instead of creating more and more work for HR professionals. Mm-hmm. So I got a couple questions I wrote down as you were talking through. Um, first, you mentioned that people look at empathy as, you know, put yourself in their shoes. I'm curious what you would define it as then. You said you think about it differently. Can you expand a little bit on how you think about it? I view empathy as understanding that I cannot assume I know where your shoes have been. Mm -hmm. So I like to teach empathy as an actionable skill where you know the questions to ask, but most importantly, you're leaning in with curiosity. Now, one of my favorite TV shows characters that I watched with my kids growing up was Curious George. I love that little dude. And it was just something about George where... He obviously was not from that city. He was that he was in a totally new environment, but he approached each situation and each person he encountered with curiosity. He didn't make assumptions. He didn't assume that he knew what the 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 um the cook was thinking or what the what was she the dinosaur no, he the, the yellow hat was a dinosaur guy. She was the scientist, you know. Even when he went to the country, he always leaned in with curiosity. And he asked in his George communication style the right questions to help a person feel heard, to help a person feel valued, to help them to feel like what they have to contribute is important. So while I define empathy as operating with curiosity and compassion, I like to see it more as an actionable trait as opposed to just a mental one. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I really like that. The other thing is when I think about stresses of a job, it's normally because the outcomes that you receive are not what you were hoping for. And I, I think about that a lot, like within HR, we talked about having these tough conversations on a daily basis. And I, I would assume that if you're very good at it and all these tough conversations, the result was was happiness, like you, you help somebody, I imagine that gives you energy. It doesn't burn you out. So what are some things, some tips to be better within those conversations where you can walk away with more positive outcomes? So I guess, how do you become a therapist a little bit better? <laughs> 
part of it is having a realistic expectation of the outcome. Sometimes we have to take a step back and realize we only play a role. We don't conduct the whole orchestra. You know, we can't determine what that outcome is going to be. We can just do our part in it. And not having such a strong emotional investment in the outcome. We can care about the outcome, but sometimes we see it as a personal failure if it doesn't turn out the way that we would like it to or expected it to or think it should. So having that solid sense of self and identity, regardless of what it is you're in, you're being involved in, so that yours, you don't tie your worth and your value to how well that change initiative was received or how well that person took that 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 being laid off conversation. Um, I think so. I think that is really, really important. I think also recognizing when you're communicating. It's not always about having the answer or the fix. I know I know HR is the answer of people. You know, y'all are supposed to have all the answers. But when we put that pressure on ourselves to be the fixer of everything, it's heavy. It can be debilitating. It increases stress. It increases depression. It increases anxiety. Sometimes that mindset, that mental shift is instead of me having all the answers, maybe I just need to ask more questions. Mm-hmm. And that way it, be, it becomes more of a collaborative solution focused process. It takes some of the pressure off of you. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I was I was going to ask that like what what is a good outcome? Because I think a lot of people think the good outcome is solving the problem that that person came in with. So you're saying ask questions, but like how do you walk away from that conversation feeling like okay, like I I delivered on what I wanted to, and the outcome was a positive thing. Like what sort of signs are you, like I read a book one time that said when somebody says you're right, that's just them not agreeing with you and wanting to get out of a conversation. So like what sort of things can I be listening to or listening for as maybe the conversations wrap up to say, okay, I I know that we got to the outcome that we desired. I think if you go into it with the mindset of, I have some information, perhaps we're we're trying to share information in this scenario Mm -hmm. that I want to communicate. Now, I only have control over me communicating. I don't have control over how well they received it. I can navigate that conversation to to the best of my ability, but I cannot have the expectation that they're going to be warm and fuzzy as a result of what I shared. Mm -hmm. So I think the goal is, did they hear me clearly with what I'm trying to communicate? So one strategy that I love to share and kind of walk people through different steps of communication, especially when you're having a stressed out mind, both self and others, is at the end or toward the end, you ask them to reflect back to you. What are your takeaways or what is it that you, you know, what do you what did you receive from our time together today? What is what is that? um your, what are your thoughts on our conversation or what I shared? So the last thing walking out the door is not you sharing your thoughts, but the other person sharing theirs. So that way you can know they heard you. And if not, then it allows you the opportunity to clarify or or further elaborate upon something. So that way 
you've achieved your goal of communicating really important information. Yeah. I real quick, I, I completely agree with everything Erica Erica stated, and I would just maybe pile on and add a couple of additional pieces for our listeners is in addition to clarifying at the end, I think you can also ask in the beginning, you know, what is your intent or what is your objective? What do you want to get out of this conversation today? So that, you know, you're both at the beginning of the conversation level set on what the expectations are of both parties and the communication. And then the other thing that I would add is, Although HR plays a massive role in employee experience, and we are for the employee, we are also for the organization. You know, we are in positions where we have to reduce risk for the organizations. We have to help support compliance and abiding by our policies to help, um, to help again, reduce risk for the organization. So not every conversation is a win for the employee based on what the situation is about. It may be more of a win for the organization that we didn't put ourselves outside of compliance, which costs the organization potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I just wanted to add that on because I think sometimes, especially maybe early HR career professionals kind of come in with this lens of like, I'm here to support the employee and do whatever the employee needs, but there really needs to be two lenses or two hats that a really strong HR professional is playing all the time. And that is to support the employee and the employee well-being and help be a voice for the employee while also helping to be a voice for the organization and reducing risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, great advice. And I probably would have, I'll say I think about it differently now after you say that. Um, I one more thing, Erica, is you I've heard you say a few times like avoid making assumptions about a situation, right? Like we talked about empathy and um, making those those wrong assumptions. And I think we go into a lot of conversations with those assumptions, whether we think about it or not. Um, I actually had a buddy text me this morning who was like, guys, I had a, a tough day. I think he had. One person promoted, had to tell three people they didn't get it, had to lay off four people, and one person was retiring. So I think about him going into all of these different conversations with these different assumptions, and it doesn't always turn out that way. So my question is, like, is there is there a way that you train people or that you're trained to not make assumptions going into a conversation? And I don't want to mistake assumptions with being prepared for that conversation and can you maybe explain the differences yes i love that i love that because we know that we're going to go into any situation with assumptions because we all have biases if anyone thinks they do not have a bias i need you to check in with yourself and be honest, we all have biases. This is how we learn, how we survive. It's about how aware we are of our biases and our assumptions, and then how we how we allow it to show up in the way that we interact with each other. So one strategy that I love to share with folks that I'm use I'm, I'm doing coaching or training with is the power of or. Or allows you to put a dot 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 in place of a period. So we're walking into this situation, for example, with your buddy, he's walking into the situation saying, oh, it's going to be a tough day because I have to let 
person A, B, and C, no, they didn't get the job, period. That period says that is the only outcome that I can possibly expect. So then we mentally and emotionally prepare ourselves for that outcome. Instead of a period, let's do a comma or a dot, 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 or this could happen, or this could happen. So we're, we're reframing that original thought and allowing the possibility for other events, situations, outcomes, responses to happen. So it was a fun little activity we do um, where, we, where people get into groups and you challenge each other based upon the scenario. What are all the possible outcomes you can think of to happen with this particular scenario? And it's really fun because other you can hear other people's perspectives and actually learn about people based upon how straight or how out there their ors are. So trying to challenge the assumption by finding other possibilities is a really um, fun way that I like to teach it. I love that. I think it was Mike Tyson. Everybody has a plan until you punch in the face. That's how I feel sometimes going into conversations where I, I think I know what the outcome is going to be and it's always wrong. So I love that. I'll definitely try the, the or. So we, we've kind of peppered in, I think, some answers to this questions, this question, but I would love to elaborate on it further, Erica, just really on how organizations can contribute to creating an environment that really supports the well-being of our HR professionals. In my bias opinion, um, organizations um, are likely not to be nearly as successful as they could be without a strong HR function. So um, retaining their HR team, keeping their HR team engaged, um, excited, creates obviously a better experience for the leaders in that organization as well as the employees. So how can we keep them engaged and retained and how can organizations support that? Organizations need to, I think, in my opinion, my humble opinion, need to actually understand what HR is doing, right? They they, they throw y'all out a whole bunch of problems that here, go fix that. And I think in order to fully support, you have to first understand. So how that shows up, rather it's um, leaders actually sitting down and having conversations about what is on HR's plate so that when you ask them to do something new, is it contradicting what they're already doing that you've asked of them? Or is it overloading that plate? It makes me think of, you know, you, you go to a, a buffet and you, you put just the right amount of stuff on your plate. But then you see something else on a buffet you want to add to and then add it and everything goes kapooey all over your white pants. So we don't want to overload, but no one actually knows what HR is doing. So they just keep giving you more and more. So one way organizations can support their HR professionals is actually understand what they're doing. And then perhaps prioritizing instead of saying everything needs to be done. Say this is the order of importance so that you can more accurately and more efficiently manage your energy and your resources. I think also, as we've talked about before, educating and training managers to be, I, I, I use this term loosely, but more effective gatekeepers. If managers actually were healthy in the way that they engage with employees, if they had an understanding on how to have conversations and manage conflict and really truly operate with a, a trauma-informed lens, specifically around emotional intelligence, HR wouldn't have quite so many fires to put out. 
So then they could, as as in, in their role, be able to be more effective and not feel as overwhelmed. At least that's been my experience after managers have boosted that emotional intelligence HR, as a result, has a better um, grasp of what their day-to-day is like. Mm-hmm. I agree. And oh, I would. Sorry, Mike. I'll just sorry. I'll just add because Erica, your first one, which I think is so important, which is leaders should know or organ business leaders should know what their HR team is doing. From my vantage point, sitting in the HR seat. I would also say that I think HR needs to do a better job of educating their leaders on what they are doing. Like we can't wait for our business leaders to come to us and ask us, what do you do every day? Or what are your priorities? Like we need to be the ones educating our leaders so that they can understand what we are prioritizing, all the things that we do behind the curtain, right? To make things run smoothly for folks in the business. I love that. And I guess to piggyback on that is when you're communicating it, make sure it's framed as a win. I mean, not everything is a win, but sometimes just giving bullet points. If when people are not in your space, they don't actually see how it's all connected. So HR, I think reframing for self, not just the big wins, but the small wins too, so that then you can actually share that. Pat yourself on the back a little bit. I think you deserve it too. It's, it's, it's got to be a, a, a huge conflict because when I think about managers and, and I'm looking at more from like a sales perspective, like I've, I've been in leadership roles and I've talked to a lot of other leaders. And when we think about organizationally having everybody adopt this mindset of, you know, have these conversations, have the empathy before it kind of gets to HR. I know that a lot of people in those manager roles believe that that's not their responsibility. That's not. They have a bunch of other things that they're responsible for, and this is just one thing that's not. And I don't know, even know if I disagree with that. Being in those roles, it's very hard to accumulate all these other skills when you were hired to do one thing. That's what you're good at. You know, let's say in sales, right? You got to move a number, um, and then when people come to you with these other issues, it is very easy for those managers to kind of say, okay, this this is not my, one, it's not my area of expertise, and two, should I really be doing this? So my question is, is it is it a small, like, skill gap? Are there some small tweaks? Because I, I don't think it's going to be easy to just move an entire organization towards this, you know, collective nature of the emotional well-being of every single employee. But are there some things that you would suggest, Erica, for these managers maybe do think hey this isn't this isn't my role i can't do this like what are some small things they can do that could make a big impact if everybody did it i think part of the challenge is when people are given positions based upon skill set but not upon not but consideration is not given to their ability to lead people right Mm -hmm. yes you are in charge of xyz but the rest of the alphabet are the people who you are managing. So I think part of it is the shift in seeing it as a part of your role. And once again, being a manager is not the same thing as being a therapist. I'm not equating the two. I'm not asking you to go in and solve people's problems and woo-saw them all over the place. But if if having regular check-ins with employees feels too overwhelming, then that's a challenge. Mm-hmm. So one thing is to have check-ins with your folks, like a real one, not just a, 
two seconds right before the meeting starts. Right. Having that check-in to say, you know, what's on your plate? What are your wins? What are your challenges? How can I support you? Just acting in a manner that shows that you're vested in the well-being can be as simple as that. Another part is understanding, for um, for example, like when, when people are stressed or when they've experienced trauma, their brain goes into self-protection mode. And when we protect ourselves, we are going to process information in a very different way. So if you have that measure of understanding, when you are giving people instructions, you're going to communicate it differently. And you can do that across the board because you don't know anybody's background. And I'm please don't go ask anybody if they've experienced trauma. Please, please, please. That's not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But if you understand people's brain when they're stressed, has a hard time processing information. You'll start to speak in a main topic and three bullet point type of sentence uh, so that you are getting your main point and then your three supporting facts. Stopping or pausing, ask them to reflect back or ask them if they have any questions before you move on. So just those two simple things is a, is a very healthy way for a manager who is trying to build their skill set in being a leader to really do that in an effective and efficient way. And to be clear, I, I agree with you 100%. I actually think that the way that managers are maybe compensated or evaluated should maybe change in order to accommodate a lot of these things, but that's a topic for a different a different day. But when everything is tied to results and not necessarily tenure and retention, then I, I think that it creates an environment that's very hard to accomplish what we talked about today um, personally. Uh, but Jess, do you have anything else or should we give Erica an opportunity to tell everybody where, where they can reach her? Just say, Erica, is there anything, you know, given your, your expertise and our topic today that Mike and I did not ask about or that we missed that we should cover given what we what what our audience might be hoping for today that want to fill in any gaps? Uh, you know, I'm a therapist. I have to talk about self-care. You know, I think that that is important and it has to be on the priority list. We we tend to put ourselves last, regardless of what else is going on, whether it's in our family situation or at work. That's an unfortunate truth that when we have a lot on our plate, our stuff and taking care of our own needs is not given a priority. And part of the challenge is we make self-care like this big grand thing that no, you don't have time for. You do not have time to go through the spa. You do not have time to go on vacation every time you get stressed out. But what you do have time is to take a minute, several times a day, to do nothing but breathe. And somebody right now just heard that and say, Erica, I don't have time for that. Now I need you to hear yourself. If you just said, I don't have a minute to breathe, that there is a whole different conversation, a whole different problem. When we're stressed, when we're anxious, when we are facing burnout, when we are facing secondary trauma, our brain, as I said, goes into protection mode and it's gonna stay there. But if we pause and we just give it some oxygen, just breathing slowly in and out for a minute, just for a minute. It will tell you, your system, everything is okay. 
And you'll be able to face things from a totally different space just because of that one minute you took to breathe. I think the other part that I really like to emphasize for folks is to have transition points. When you are leaving work, what rituals or transitions do you have to tell you, your brain, your emotions, that work is over and now it's time for my personal life? How do you show up in your personal life so that you um, can leave work at work? We don't want to carry the two over. So everyone needs to create that that ritual for yourself. And, you know, it's an experiment to see what's going to work best for you. But uh, I don't know what did either one that, of you have a, that, a, well, a practice. I was going to say that ritual part right there. I, I'd love to hear if you if you have a ritual, because I think when we moved to remote work and hybrid work, that transition like that used to be my commute. And now it's that's gone. And I honestly think that's been one of the biggest struggles with remote work, at least for me, is my commute now is 10 feet out of my office. And then I'm right in like there is no transition time. So is do you have any recommendations on what you can do to like reset? And I'm talking specifically more to those who are working at home, because mm-hmm. I think that's where people challenge are challenged. Yeah, I I like to keep it simple, right? You know, we don't have to be grand or elaborate. Music, have a song. What's your theme song? What is what is that song that you can play every day that just says, "I am done, I am free, and I'm ready to be me." Whatever that song is that is going to set that mental mood for you, play it as you are leaving that mental space of work. I'm not going to advocate doing any type of social media stuff, but for me, I actually, so if I'm working and I have several clients back to back in my, my few minutes in between, I compartmentalize one client stuff by perhaps scrolling through Pinterest for like a minute because it, it kind of closes that door and allows me to open it for someone else. So in your workday, you are flying from phone call to Teams meeting, to this meeting, to that email. Sometimes you need transition points just so that you can compartmentalize the previous activity. So that might be helpful too. I like those and I'll I'll add a couple too. Um, I've switched and this isn't something I can always apply but I have switched to trying to make the meetings that I can make 45 minutes or 50 minutes instead of 60 minutes. And then I really protect that 10 or 15 minutes. So if someone's like, Hey, Jesse, can you stay on for another couple of minutes? Or somebody sees I'm green and they're like, Hey, do you have a couple of minutes? I'll ask, is this urgent? Can this wait till the end of the day? Can this wait until tomorrow? And if it's not urgent, and I, I push it to a later time so I can protect that 10 to 15 minutes to even just honestly walk up my stairs and fill up my water or take a breath or stand up and stretch my legs or whatever it is I need to do to get my blood flowing and be focused and ready for my next meeting. And then I'm uh, just a kind of give a plug for another guest that we had on the podcast on episode 52. We had Nikki Peters Barrett, who is... Um, the uh, chief executive officer for Studio 9 to 5. 
And on that episode, we did talk about the importance of wellness in the workplace. And we actually practiced um, on the episode a couple of quick breathing techniques that help um, kind of slow your nervous system down and kind of reset your body. So if listeners, if you haven't listened to, to episode 52 with Nikki Peters Barrett, go back and listen to that episode because um, I think that'll give you some additional tips in addition to what Mike and Erica and I are chatting about today. And, and I love what you just shared because you kind of combine two things that we were talking about. You didn't make an assumption that their emergency needed to be your emergency, that what was going on in their life needed to interrupt what you're talking, what you had planned. And you did that by asking the question instead of jumping to the fix. And because of that, you were able to create a healthy boundary for yourself and prioritize yourself instead of just putting yourself on a back burner. So I love that. That is awesome. Thank you. Thanks for being a guest today. This was a really fun episode. Can you share with our listeners, Erica, where they can connect with you if they want to talk more about this or if there's anything that you're working on right now, projects or anything that you want to plug, feel free to use this time to do that. Sure. And thank you for, for allowing me to share this space with you guys. I have had a ball, uh, but I would love for folks to come visit me on my website, which is leadingwellsolutions.com. And there you can learn how to connect with me so that we can customize a training for your organization or even do some direct um, coaching for you or any managers or HR professionals within your organization. And I'm really excited about the course that will soon be launched in the next couple of weeks. I'm not sure when this podcast will air, but it's about leading with empathy. And it really dives into those seven principles of trauma-informed leadership that I spoke about. And it gives actionable strategies. You know, one of the hats that I wear is as a professor. So I'm all about creating, you know, a, an actionable, actionable task. I don't want you to have concept. I need you to know how to implement it for sustained learning. So the course is full of uh, scenarios and interactions to help you understand how this concept will be applicable to your day-to-day. So I invite you to go take a look at that on the website, leadingwellsolutions.com. And of course, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, My personal page is Erica N. Reed, LCSWC. And then the business page is Leading Well Solutions. Great. Well, good. This was really fun again. Thank you so much for being a guest today. I'm excited to get some feedback from what our listeners um, experience and take away from this episode. Um, So thanks again, Erica. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO. Help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That's podcast at tcsherm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, 
Please use code WHATTHEHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode. 